To start today, I want to ask you a question. Who are you? If someone came up to you and asked you, who are you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? I know our culture right now is very um, obsessed with identity, but that's not something that's unique to our culture. We've been obsessed with identity our, our whole lives, and the human nature is by nature obsessed with identity. We're by nature tribal people, and we like to categorize and subcategorize people into various categories. Often when I meet a, a man that I don't know, and we maybe exchange names, but one of the first questions we ask each other is, what do you do for a living? We identify very closely with what we do for a living or where we work. When I meet a believer or I find out they're a believer, often the next question is, where do you go to church? And we identify very closely with where we attend church and where others attend church. Another common way that we categorize ourselves is by the sports teams that we root for. You see so many bumper stickers, flags, jerseys, and all of them proclaim the team that we've chosen to identify with. Sometimes we can identify so strongly with a professional sports team that even someone with very unremarkable athletic ability can say with a straight face, we won last night. (laughs) And we're so identified, it gives us joy to be in something else. There are many other ways that we tribalize and categorize people by gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, family name, class, political political affiliation, and on and on and on. There's so many subcategories and identifiers. And all of these divisions and tribalisms, they do have varying degrees of importance. There is, however, one identifier that is of ultimate importance, and that divides across all the categories that I've mentioned. That identifier is whether we are outside of Jesus Christ or whether we are in Jesus Christ. And we can only be in one or the other. The New Testament uses that identifier in Christ or some variation of it in him about 80 times. In contrast, the identifier Christian is only used three times. And it sounds like Christian was something that was almost used as a a pejorative It was something to name call. Oh, you're a Christian, a little Christ, following the one who was crucified on the cross. Yet Peter tells us not to be ashamed to be called a Christian. And that's something that we've largely taken as our identity as Christians. But I want to look this morning at the identifier in Christ. And we're going to look at Ephesians 1. If you want to turn there already. The Bible tells us that believers have been crucified with Christ, we've been buried with Christ in baptism, we've been raised with Christ, and we'll be glorified with Christ. And in the hymn that we started uh, singing this morning, the first hymn we sang, the last verse, this was the uh, hymn, How Can It Be, by Charles Wesley, No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And I thought that was very fitting with the theme that I want to look at today. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. We are to identify so closely with Jesus that we are not merely with him or near him, but in him. And this relationship we have with Christ is also mutual. Not only are we in him, but he is also in us. Several times we read in the Bible that Christ is in us. We're going to look at some of those, but just one example for now is where Paul is praying for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.17. He prays that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. This phraseology, in Christ, um, in him, is often called the doctrine of union with Christ. And this doctrine is not only found in all the frequent occurrences of in him, in Christ, that we find throughout the Bible, but it's also found in the many illustrations we have of the believer's relationship with Jesus. Some of the relation, or sorry, some of the illustrations of the union with Christ are the picture of marriage being a display of Christ in the church, the picture of us being living stones, being built into a spiritual house on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the picture of the church as a body and Jesus as its head, and also the picture of the vine and the branches in John 15. This doctrine of the believer's union with Christ, it forms the background and the backbone of many benefits, if not all the benefits that we have as believers. So this morning, I want to look at a few of those benefits from Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to look more closely at verses 3 through 14. While I read, look for the phrases, in Christ or in him, and you'll also notice the work of the Trinity in our salvation, the work of the Trinity in eternity past, in our present life, and also in our future inheritance. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read the chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray before we jump in. Dear Lord, I thank you for the privilege to be able to preach your word this morning. I pray that this sermon and the listening of the sermon would be an act of worship towards you, Lord. I pray that you would help me, help me to be clear of mind. I pray that I could bring out uh, the word well, and I pray that you would help the listeners and the hearers. I pray that our hearts would all be open to hear your truth, and I pray that your name would be exalted here in this building, also in this city, and then spread out throughout the world. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to look at our text this morning. I kind of titled the sermon union with Christ. And I was thinking it more, a more accurate title might be some of the benefits of our union with Christ, because we can only scratch the surface today and we will not be able to get into everything. But the three headings that I've made up for the sermon today are, I want to look at how we're chosen in Christ from verses three through six, how we have our redemption in Christ from verses seven through 10, And then also, lastly, our inheritance in Christ from verses 11 through 14. Now, this section that we're going to look at from verses 3 through 14, it reads as a prayer of thanksgiving for the blessings that we have in Christ. In the original uh, Greek text of this passage, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. So... The ESV has broken it up into five sentences, but you'll see a lot of themes repeated in this section. In the first two sentences in the English, the word blessed is found twice and blessing once. In the section from 3 through 14, we see to the praise of his glory two times and to the praise of his glorious grace once. So what is it that starts this long sentence of praise? Paul starts, verse 3, by blessing God the Father for choosing us in Christ. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The blessings that we have in Christ, they did not start with our conversion. They did not start with the incarnation of Christ. The blessings began before the foundation of the world in eternity past when the Father chose us in him. Romans 8.29 tells us, For those whom he foreknew, and another way I think I've often heard foreknew is forelove, that he foreloved us and chose us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The love that the Father has for us began before any of us were born, when he predestined us in love before the ages began. So this first link in the golden chain of redemption is a benefit of being united to Christ. 
And I think oftentimes we can have this idea that the Father only loves us because we are in Christ. And if we think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so he loved us, and then he gave us his son, and he loves us in Christ. So we don't have a begrudging father who reluctantly gives us his love because we're found in his son. No, we have a loving father who chose us in him, gave us his son, we're in Christ, and we have communion, communion with, the Christ, with Christ and the father. Those blessings continue in that it says in verse 3 that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.6, just the next chapter, it expounds on this a little bit where it says that we are seated with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So included with all the blessings of being in Christ is this fact that we are already sitting with Christ in Christ in the heavenly court. If we look at Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4, it also explains this sitting with Christ too. Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you feel like you're already in the heavenlies? Do you think the Ephesian believers felt like they were in the heavenlies? They lived in a city famous for its devotion to the goddess Artemis. Sometimes I think with all the noise and the busyness of life and time marches on, I think it's good for us to go back to the root and back to the basics and see our standing in Christ. One of the realities of the Christian life is that we are becoming what we already are. And it sounds like that's grammatically incorrect, but the truth is that our standing is in Christ and we're called to live out our standing. Immediately after telling the Colossians that they have died, this is back to Colossians 3, this is Colossians 3, 5, that they have died, Paul tells them to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? So the reality is, they have died. Now, therefore, in light of that reality, they are to put to death that what is earthly in you. They are to walk in the reality that they have, that they are that they are already in. This truth is also borne out in our text. We're chosen in Christ. We have the blessings in the heavenly places. Therefore, our text tells us, verse four that we should be holy and blameless before him. We'll find ourselves in a great deal of confusion if we put the cart before the horse regarding our sanctification. Listen carefully. We are being sanctified because we have been chosen in Christ. We are not chosen in Christ because we are being sanctified. Does that make sense? Our motivation for obedience is our standing in Christ. We do not obey to earn that standing in Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that we're called to a holy calling, not, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us where? In Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
So we have this reality that we are in Christ and we have this standing in Christ and union with Christ. And now our motivation is not trying to earn that standing. It's living out who we know that we are. Another way of putting this truth is one of the illustrations of union with Christ that I mentioned in the beginning about um, the vine and the branches. If we turn to John 15, just the two verses there, John 15, 4 and 5, this is what Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We see here again the mutual union between believers and Jesus Christ. Jesus says, abide in me. So we're abiding in him and he abides in us. And some people call it the the mystical union. And I think there's... um, I was reading somewhere where there, there is some liberal movements that are trying to pull, you know, how, how should I say it, to pull the emphasis away from justification by faith and more into this mystical union doctrine. But the, the doctrine of union with Christ, in a way, it is mystical because it's mysterious. We don't fully understand it. We accept these realities by faith. And yet, I don't want them to take that reality away from me just because they're saying it in a, in a wrong emphasis. So Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. Our branch can only bear fruit when we're attached or united to the vine. It would be preposterous to say to a branch, branch, bear fruit in order to be attached to the vine. And I think that's where sometimes... Um, in, in church history, there's been various controversies, and one of the controversies in the Scottish church was they called it the Merrow controversy. And it basically came down to, do you need to, at least in my simple way of understanding it, do you need to clean yourself up before you come to Christ? And the answer is, no, you can't. And this is what Jesus says here. What can we do apart from him? Verse 5, the end of the verse John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We must be united to him in order to bear fruit. We see this as an example of the already and the not yet in the life and experience of believers. So we are, we are already in Christ by faith. We're abiding in the true vine. We already share the blessings in the heavenlies. But at the same time, As we live out our life in time, we're also being sanctified as we grow to resemble Christ more and more until we are finally fully sanctified and glorified. And that will happen um, at at our death. Uh, 1 John 3, verses 2 explains this a little bit as well. Beloved, we are God's children now, and listen to this, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So right now we are attached to the vine and we are becoming more like Christ. We are not yet what we will be, but when we see him, we will be fully what we ought to be. The Christian life is a change in trajectory that becomes effectual at conversion. We're no longer a fruit 
sorry, a fruitless branch, but one who more and more desires and produces the fruit of union with Christ. If we look at verse 5, another of the blessings that we have in our union with Christ is our adoption as sons. We could have been like the prodigal son after his shameful departure from his father's house and his realization in the pigsty of his wretchedness, his best hope and the story he had rehearsed in his mind was that he was going to go home and he was going to be a servant. But like the prodigal, when he returns home, we've been restored to a place of full sonship in the father's house. The prodigal's father, it doesn't really say, but I'm assuming he was a farmer, but our father is the king of heaven. We've been blessed in the beloved as sons to share with the beloved. In uh, 1 John 3.1, I'm going to just read this one in the King James because I, I kind of like the cadence of how, how it was written in the King James. 1 John 3.1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. If, if God had given us salvation to be servants, that would have been amazing. But God has given us salvation to be heirs with Christ, and we are his sons. This is the, this is the best. It can't get any better than this. Here's again the reality and the not yet, though. In Romans 8.23, it says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Have we been adopted as sons? Absolutely. But we're awaiting for that full experience of it when it says the redemption of our bodies, that when we are done with this body of flesh and we experience that full inheritance, that full adoption, and we groan and we wait for that along with the rest of creation. Now let's look at um, the blessing of redemption in Christ from verses 7 through 10. So we looked at chosen in Christ. Now let's look at redemption in Christ. So even with all the blessings we have in Christ from before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ, adopted as sons, there must come a time when that calling is made effectual in your life. The Ephesian saints to whom this letter uh, was written and addressed Before conversion, Paul says that they are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2.12 says they were at that time, before they knew the Lord and the Lord knew them, they were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. When we and they were given the gift of faith, the calling was made effectual to us and them. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. When we read the word faith in the Bible, we should always remember that it's often shorthand for faith in Jesus Christ. Faith always has an object. Their faith was not in themselves. Their faith was not in their faithfulness. And their faith was not in the sincerity of their faith. Their faith was in Jesus Christ. Uh, Galatians 2.16 explains this well. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in whom? 
in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Back to Ephesians 1 verse 7. As a result of this gift of faith in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So our sins, so this act of coming to faith in Christ, there's a lot of things that are happening at that time. One of the things that happened is called imputation. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this glorious exchange that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ. Our sins are put on Jesus Christ, who did not sin and did not deserve to die that unfair death. His righteousness is put on Christ when we did not deserve that either. It's all of grace And that's the love that he shows for us and that we've been credited with Christ's righteousness. Romans 3.24 tells us that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is where? In Christ Jesus. While we were outside of Christ, we were dead in our sins, but now that we are in Christ, we have redemption and forgiveness. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is that great divide that I spoke about in the introduction that splits the believers from the unbelievers. Some are in Christ, and the one unbelievers are outside of Christ. And it's... I would... <clears throat> if you're outside of Christ... Listen to these blessings and hear these words and come to him. He is not willing that any should perish. And he is so gracious and so loving that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to him. He is the solution. We need to come to him. We need to turn from our sins and turn to the Lord. Ephesians 1.9 tells us, if we notice in verse 9, it says that we were making known to us the mystery of his will. Ephesians 1.9 tells us that uh, this has been made known to us, but there were many mysteries in the Old Covenant that the Old Covenant saints would have longed to look into, but have now been made known. Um, I just want to look at one of them, and you might be able to guess what it is, but it's Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery, part of it at least, there's others, is our union with Christ. This union with Christ will also produce union with fellow believers. Our text says in verse 10 that as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now there's so much more that we could get into with that, But I believe one of the things that are united in our unity with Christ is our unity as believers. Despite the tribal differences that we make among ourselves, we can split ourselves and categorize and subcategorize so much, but yet there's a true unity among those who are in Christ. 
Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Do those divisions still exist after Christ? In a way, but they're not the chief thing that identifies us. The chief thing that identifies us after Christ is our standing in Christ. The brother or sister sitting beside you is nearer to you in Christ than any earthly division can separate you. We're not just individuals in Christ, each doing our own separate thing, but we are all corporately in Christ as believers. Your fellow sister or brother is another stone in the living temple built on the same cornerstone that you're built on. Your fellow believer is another branch attached to the vine, who is Christ. I want my eyes to be open to that reality more and more, and I want your eyes to be open to that reality too. That the unity we have in Christ is so much more our reality than anything that can be imposed on us from from outside. The world, the culture out there, thrives on division. It thrives on um, conflict. And that's not how we learn Christ. We learned in Christ that we are peaceable and we love our brothers and sisters. And I, and I hope that we can more and more see when we meet a brother or sister, no matter what they're going through at the time, no matter what struggle they're bringing to you, or no matter what you're going through yourself, that you can remind each other of our standing in Christ, remind each other of the tremendous blessings that we have because we are united with him. Now, in the third point, let's look now to see our inheritance in Christ in verses 11 through 14, some. Closely linked to our adoption as sons, so verse verse 11 tells us that we have obtained an inheritance. Our father, like I said earlier, is not like the prodigal's dad. You know, he had wealth probably. He seemed like a rich man. He was able to throw a party and to have a fatted calf. But our father is not poor at all or stingy. He has lavished us with blessings. One of these blessings is that since we're adopted as full sons, we will inherit with Christ, the Son of God. Romans eight fifteen through 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice our identifying with Christ in inheritance, suffering, glorification. Notice also the Spirit's work in our union with Christ. The Spirit not only helps us in our prayers and bears witness, but is himself a blessing of being united with Christ. For in Christ, verse 13, it says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the ways that we know we are abiding in Christ is the presence of the Spirit. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Being in Christ and having the seal of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. 2 Corinthians 1.21, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ 
and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Notice how the Trinity is working together in our text. Notice how the Trinity works together to accomplish our salvation. The Father establishes us. We are in Christ and we're sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee. And in Ephesians 1, it's the same. The Father chooses us in eternity past. We're justified in Christ in the present, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. So we see not only the Trinity working together, but also that this spans all of time. It goes from our choosing in eternity past to our blessings in the inheritance in, our, in eternity future. And then one last command I want to look at is from Paul. Later on in this letter, in Ephesians 4.30, in light of the fact that we are sealed with the Spirit. So Ephesians 4.30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're living out the reality of us being chosen, redeemed, and sealed. This body of flesh is no longer my own. In light of our unity with Christ, how ought we to love? And we are, so we are called to be holy and blameless. And just like I said earlier, we're not called to be holy and blameless to be more united with Christ. We are united with Christ. And how do we live that out? These eyes are united with Christ. What do I decide to look at? These hands are united with Christ. What are they going to be working on? This mind is united with Christ. What will I be thinking on? And, and we can, that, that gives us a good um, way of asking ourselves questions and discerning what we are to be doing and what we are to be living. And the Spirit helps us in that. We're sealed with the Spirit, and He will help us and guide us and, and in our sanctification. Now, just to conclude, I have two different things to say in conclusion. One is for the believer. Do you realize the blessings you have in Christ? I want you to be encouraged this morning and to fully see and be motivated and rejoice in your standing in Christ. I want you to be motivated to fully become what you already are. In light of this passage in Ephesians, and I I hope you can feel praise to God and thanksgiving for our blessings that we have in Christ. And now, just a quick word to the unbeliever. There is no blessing for you outside of Christ. There is no hope outside of Christ. Do you desire the blessings found in Christ? Flee to him, not away from him. These blessings are only found in him. Don't look to yourselves. Look away from yourself and look to him. In yourself and in your flesh, you will always be inadequate and miserable. But in Christ, we have the fullness of blessing and the fullness of joy. And I hope, I hope that you could experience that. I pray that you would have the same heart as the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 8, 9, where he says this, and this is a very good life motto to live by for unbelievers. I trust that you come in Christ 
for believers, I trust that this is also could be a motto for us. Philippians 3, 8 through 9, or 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and what? Be found in him. Be found in him. Having not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, please give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you and your Son and the Holy Spirit. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. Lord, help us as believers to more fully see our inheritance that we have in you, see the blessings that we have being united to you, live out the reality that we are already in. I pray that we would see the riches of your glorious inheritance. I pray that we would see the greatness of your power. I pray that you would start a work in our hearts and continue the work in our hearts till the day of Jesus Christ. I pray that us as a church here in Windsor, Calvary Baptist, that we could um, grow and be a, a beacon of light, a beacon of joy, a beacon of great hope that sinners would not turn away from us, but that they would look and just hunger for what it is that we have. And I pray that for those whose hearts have not been opened yet to hear this truth, I pray that you would open their hearts and that they would look, not tomorrow, not next week, but this morning, that they would look now and be encouraged and blessed in the beloved. I pray that we would have this heart of of joy for our families, for our friends. I pray that we would desire and want to see them also united with Christ. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.